Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is June 21st, 2018, and my guest is political scientist and author Patrick Deneen. He is professor of political science and holds the David A. Potenziani Memorial College Chair at the University of Notre Dame. His latest book, which is the subject of today's episode, is Why Liberalism Failed. Patrick, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. Let's begin with the definition, uh, because liberalism means lots of different things to different people in different parts of the world. Uh, What do you mean by liberalism when you say it's failed? Sure, and that's of course uh, that's the crux of the issue. Is uh, if my definition is right, then uh, then perhaps you can accept the argument. But uh, but many people obviously have differences over the definition. Uh, I guess I would start with just. uh, a very basic premise, which is um, liberalism inaugurates a kind of a new understanding of liberty. There, liberty is a very old word. It goes back to the Latin libertas. And in a classical and then in the Christian tradition, liberty meant the condition of ruling oneself according to what is understood to be good. And always had a kind of understanding that the life of liberty was a life lived according to virtue. So that there was a kind of form of self-limitation and an orientation toward an understanding of the good, that was the ground condition for what constituted liberty. And in the early modern period, in the beginnings of the liberal project, um, the word liberty was continued to be used, but the definition became really rather different. And one sees it originally in a proto-liberal thinker like Thomas Hobbes, and then a fully kind of full-blown liberal thinker like like John Locke, that liberty becomes uh, understood as the absence of obstacle to the fulfillment of our desires or will or appetite, so that it becomes redefined as the absence of external constraint. And as a political matter, then, you can see how this would really transform um, our understanding of what the ends and purpose of government is and what they should be. And you argue that what I will call maybe progressives or modern liberals, uh, people who would identify with the left in America today, as well as people you would call conservatives – um, or classical liberals, sometimes shading into libertarianism, that both of those groups are liberal by your definition. Yeah, really what we have is a kind of debate over the means to the end of the liberation of the individual. And in the classical liberal tradition, that means was understood largely as the limitation of the state understood in a certain way. Uh, and, and of course, the uh, expansion of, um, of the economic realm, the, you know, what we think of today as the free market system, as the, as the best venue for the pursuit of this kind of idea of individual liberty. And then in the kind of, let's say, the second wave of liberalism, the progressive uh, liberalism, 
the understanding is that it's actually um, inequalities and injustices arising from the economic system that prevents a large number of people from realizing their personal individual liberty. And so what's needed is the intervention of the state and the um, the role of the state to put people in the position then uh, to have the kind of equal opportunity to, to pursue liberty. But my argument is really that what we think of as the great and titanic political battle of our time, kind of classical liberal versus progressive liberal, is actually two sides of the same coin. And what we see failing is not um, is not one version of this liberalism or another version of this liberalism, but the entire um, in a way that the presupposition that that liberty understood in, in the, this liberal understanding is itself at fault and at, at really at the core of what what I think is the the kind of the crisis of, of, of the modern liberal regime. You also make the dramatic claim, a provocative claim that the state has grown, gotten larger, its power is extended as the scope of individuality is also being expanded. Try, flesh that out. Explain what you mean and see if I got it right. Yeah, sure. Um, we tend to think, and again, I think this goes back to this division between classical liberal and progressive liberal. So we tend to think that um, on the one hand, there's this kind of condition of the, unliber- the liberated individual. And that's the kind of ideal that you see in classical liberal understanding. And then on the other side, you have the kind of growing and encroaching state as a limitation on individualism. Uh, and that's that's the way we tend to think of this dualism. But I argue in the book um, that, in fact, individualism requires an expanding state um, because individualism is a kind of, you could say, it's a condition that requires um, the growth and expansion of let's say, broad functions that are provided by the state, including uh, the expansion of the market, um, but that the state begins to fill in um, for all of the kind of, we could say, sort of functions of civil society, think family community, church, and so forth, that provided for the sort of sustenance and, and, and help of, of individuals, but of course also therefore limited the scope of individual expression and individual autonomy. So in the pursuit of this ideal of individualism that classical liberalism sets up, the odd thing is that the state is required to expand and grow in order to make possible the conditions of the realization of this this creature, the individual. So rather than the individual being in this theoretical sense, the creature imagined in the state of nature – the individual only comes into being once you have this kind of large expansion of an increasing centralization and empowering of the central state. And this, I think, helps to explain this kind of odd paradox that's not well explained by our politics, that on the one hand, we have all these growing measures of individualism. If you look across all kinds of findings in social science, the decline in the family, the the decline of childbearing, um, the the decline of associations and um, the, the the cratering of religious affiliation uh, and declining membership in churches. On the one hand, you have this explosion of this kind of form of individualism, but on the other hand, you have the increasing and extraordinary centralization of the state. And I, and I think really it, it's best understood that these two phenomena grow together rather than uh, understanding them as opposites. I like your your description of culture. Community, I think you said, I don't know if you use these exact words, but culture, community, and religion, you could throw in the family as well. These are all aspects of pre-modern life that restrained choice, 
by by people in their daily lives. Culture, community, religion, family. We were encouraged as individuals to respect those those institutions and what your book made me appreciate, although I don't agree with all of it and find some of it puzzling, but what your book made me appreciate is how much of the what I would call the modern project, what you call liberalism, I think of it as also as modernity and we had a recent episode with um, Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay on, in that formulation of it. But much of that was I don't say, well, I don't want to say it was designed to destroy those constraints because there was no one in charge of it. It's an emergent phenomenon, but certainly the rise of modernity and the rise of liberalism, as you define it, have cut those uh, restraints on authority and on the choices that individuals make, whether they are by class, uh, you know, peasants, serfs, uh, middle, you know, bourgeois, whether they're by race, whether they are by gender, um, all of those previous categorizations have been either eliminated or greatly reduced. And most people, I think, listening in my audience would say, yeah, that's been great. So you don't – I don't think you feel that way. So what's wrong with that liberation? What's wrong with modernity's um, destruction of those sources of authority in the past that, that many people today see as repressive or uh, confining? I guess the most surprising thing about your formulation is that your members of your audience uh, think this is largely a good thing. Um, I yeah, would think, at the I think very but I think that I know that's true for my audience. And I'm sympathetic to them. Uh, I'm sure. not entirely in agreement. Uh, now, I'll, I'll give you some reasons on both sides, but but I think that's the case. I think most people, my audience is predominantly, uh, by the way, I think is disproportionately, say, 25 to 35, and in that uh, age group, they don't want to have anything to do with those things. Community, time, religion, I mean, I, I, I've been, family. Yeah, I've, been, I've been teaching uh, uh, students roughly 18 yeah. to 22 years old and then graduate students. You know about them. Yeah, I sure do. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it seems to me that it's at, at the very least uh, a very mixed view of things. On the one hand, there is a sense of a kind of liberation, um, living in an age uh, in which there aren't the kind of say, traditional guideposts, but that's at least as great a source, at least in my experience, as great a source of anxiety as it is of any liberation, um, that it's, uh, that it's a very much of a mixed bag. Uh, and, it, and it seems to me that what, we've, what we have lost, if I, I don't mean to sound nostalgic, but, but, but at least one understanding that, that, that we've lost is that it's not so much that these kinds of institutions, broadly speaking, culture, community, religion, family, it's not so much that they restrained choice as such. It's that um, it, I think these kinds of institution oriented people toward making good choices. As you can't eliminate choice from, from human beings. We know this from the Garden of Eden. Uh, choice is a, is a constitutive aspect of what human life is about. But it seems to me that civilization has always been ordered on the understanding that there are good choices and there are bad choices, and that we we've constructed institutions um, broad, you know, from the, the most basic, the familial structure, up to you know the national forms of law and so forth. But but all the intermediate institutions that that exist uh, in between those kind of the the very local and the, and the very the much more national that orient people toward 
toward good choice and 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 um, the ability to make good choices not because it's imposed upon you ultimately but because you sort of adopt within your own soul the capacity to make those good choices and, and speaking as a parent that's what you try to do with your children you you know you, you begin as something of an of an authority but ultimately you have to hand over the reins to your children in the hopes that you have oriented them toward making those kinds of choices so what it seems to me what we've done as a civilization is concluded that even those kinds of institutions that orient people toward making good choices, that constitutes a form of arbitrary and unjust authority. And we've thrown ourselves, we've made ourselves or, or thrown off uh, largely uh, the kinds of the, the, the formational aspects of those institutions with the family maybe still being the one and only. But the result of this is that now we have, uh, in particular, a, con- a condition in a situation where it's especially young people who come from um, uh, families and to some extent communities that are well constituted that now have increasingly advantages over those who don't. Uh, so it's not a kind of just an undifferentiated liberation from these kinds of institutions. It's become a much more, you could say, a kind of class-based um, uh, advantage uh, increasingly that students at the institutions where I have tended to teach at Princeton, Georgetown, Notre Dame definitely uh, have considerable advantages um, and um, uh, uh, where those who are um, increasingly uh, finding it more difficult to form those kinds of institutions, um, we, we see this kind of decimation among the, the lower and the lower middle classes in our society and across the industrialized West. So I, 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 I'm, I guess I, I, w- I would be a bit surprised if your listening audience didn't see this um, sort of, let's say, um, uh, dislocation of authoritative institutions as, as the very least a kind of mixed uh, consequence of this broad project of modernity. Well, I think the economic consequences of, of the current time are, are misunderstood, but I and I think there people are too pessimistic about them and and too pessimistic about inequality. Having said that, there are large groups of people who are not integrated well into the economy, and I don't I'm not it's not obvious they're going to be well integrated into the economy in the coming decades, and that's alarming on all kinds of mostly human for mostly human reasons. But I, the other point I want to make, which I I want to look at, at your argument a little bit differently about liberation. I I, I, and the mix, whether it's how much of it's a mixed bag or not, I, I do think there is two conflicting impulses in human beings, which which I don't I don't think you have talked about explicitly. Implicitly, it's in your book, but we have a desire to be free. We, we want autonomy. We want to craft our own identities. We also like to be taken care of, and and some of that, of course, comes from the womb. It's just our very nature that you know, as you said, when you're young, uh, as a parent, you're telling your kids how to behave. You're trying to tell them what are good choices. There comes a point where they don't want to hear that anymore. <laughs> and whether you want to tell them what's a good choice or not, they're not interested. And so that we go through that phase. But deep down inside us, there's still that part that I want someone who knows better than I do what's good for me. And so when you talk about good choices, I think a, a skeptic would say, well, whose choice, who decides what a good choice is? And our culture increasingly is tolerant of all choices. You know, there are no bad choices. Anything you do, it's, as long as it's your choice and it, and it feels right to you, that that's, is to be honored. And that's a strange idea. Uh, 
a very modern idea, but I but I understand it. We have a deep impulse to make our own choices and 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 lie in our own bed. At the same time, I think we have this desire to be coddled and to be after we, we want to avoid those choices. So I see when I look at sort of the mixed bag of of modernity's uh, political upheaval, and we'll get to that more explicitly later. I see this conflict playing out over that dimension. My con- my inner conflict between wanting to be free and wanting to be taken care of. And as a classical liberal, I'm always pushing for people to push to have embrace their own freedom, their own autonomy, and to make good choices as they see them. Uh, but I understand that not everybody feels that way. And, and I look at part of the failure of my philosophy to influence the world more than it has is the fact that and people just aren't, they don't really want make their own choices so much. What are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, so what strikes me is that you have sort of the worst of the worst of all possible worlds. If, if on the one hand uh, you have a philosophy, uh, which I think we do, which argues that freedom is the condition in which we have an absence of external constraints to the fulfillment of my desires. This is the core definition of what liberalism is. But on the other hand, and I think you're right about that, that, uh, that we have a right to be taken care of um, and if anything, um, that the consequences of the choices that I make ultimately um, shouldn't be attributed to me or that uh, society should in some ways be uh, held to be responsible. You could say we have the worst of classical liberalism and the worst of progressive liberalism combined there. In other words, that um, it's only when freedom and responsibility uh, are combined in a um, uh, in a very strong relationship that um, that you could say that freedom is properly understood and its consequences are, are, are properly embraced. So freedom without the responsibility of the consequences of the choices you make uh, is leads to a condition in which you have, broadly speaking, sort of societal irresponsibility. Uh, and, it's and, and it's infantilizing. It, it, absolutely. Uh, I would agree with that entirely. And we live – I do think we live with this kind of combination of this – uh, let's say this detached understanding of what freedom is, uh, alongside a kind of broadly, um, uh, kind of a broadly conceived understanding that ultimately we're not the uh, we're not responsible, uh, and we're not the the sources of the consequences uh, of the choices we make. And so, I, again, I would say that the 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 broadly speaking, the breakdown of these these institutions, these formative institutions, uh, that again. Uh, range from the very familiar, you know, the very local and familial, all the way up to the to the national and even international. Of course, religion being a, a, a big role and part in this, sought to forge a very strong connection between this idea of freedom rightly exercised and responsibilities and consequences that flow from freedom when it is wrongly exercised. And it's this detached idea of freedom as simply this good in itself. Uh, that I'm afraid sometimes that a certain understanding of classical liberalism uh, tends to expound uh, that I think has led to a, a, a breakdown in the relationship between the what should be a close bond between freedom and responsibility. And yet, you know, I, I really uh, fascinated by your description of the I would call it the Liberty Project is to be is is a matter of self control at both the personal and then the political level. Uh, I think a lot of people understand that deeply. Uh, they're embedded in what you call liberalism, but modern liberalism, but they deep down long for self-control. Those of us – there are plenty of people I think who use Twitter and and their phones all day and don't, don't feel anything 
that there's anything wrong with that, and that that's fine. But many of us wish we used it, quote, a little bit less, or wish we ate a little bit less, or wish we exercised a little bit more, wish we read better books rather than uh, lower brow books, et cetera, et cetera. And I, you know, I just, I, I get a, I get an email from the daily, I got an email from the Daily Stoic today. It was something about how to exercise self control. I think a lot of there's a lot of pushback, and the pendulum swings back to where people are saying, "Yeah, may, maybe everything I want to do for myself isn't always good for me." And isn't that the way we want our culture to evolve to allow those kind of natural impulses that we have? Isn't that my responsibility? That self control. Why would I want that coming from outside me in any dimension? Well, I mean, it seems to me that's a core assumption of liberalism is the idea of the self-making self. It's yeah. the idea that the, the individual <laughs> makes him or herself. Love that. But I think, I think this is, yeah, but I think this is fundamentally a false understanding of the human person. We are creatures that are bound in relationships to each other. And the self is, is you could say the self is itself. We are ourselves uh, in many ways, the kind of sum of those kinds of relationships. And the challenge that we face is we have this ideology of the self-making self, and we have abandoned the self to the self-making. But the self is really um, ultimately, I think, you're, I think you're right to describe that, that we need these kinds of, let's say, sort of external encouragements to a kind of self-control and a self-discipline. But we have largely disassembled the institutions uh, that, in a way, served as the kind of training ground for those. And I'll put it, I will put it this way, uh, going back to something we were saying earlier, that the upper classes have largely been able, in some ways, to create new forms of those institutions, um, largely through uh, the exercise of their wealth and their privilege. These institutions used to be a lot more egalitarian. Uh, it used to be simply a part of the fabric of social life and the kind of breakdown of – especially in where we see in the lower and the working class, the breakdown of these kinds of institutions has made it extremely difficult uh, for people who are struggling at the margins of our economy today to do things that weren't that difficult even when you know, they, were, they were arguably even poorer. Uh, and had fewer opportunities. During the Great Depression, for example, there was a great um, encouragement uh, and support for marriage and for family and formation of a kind of human life that was encouraged through church and Boy Scouts and, the again, the broad set of institutions that existed in, in the country. So I, I think that um, – uh, it's, it's a kind of false conception that we simply make ourselves that, that the ability to exercise these kinds of, of, of forms of, of freedom and choice that orient us toward the good um, come from a kind of training that has to begin at you know, the earliest age in ways that are not simply the result of our own will and our own making, which is not to minimize how important that becomes as we become adults, but a kind of you need a, you need a strong formation uh, that precedes um, the ability for ourselves to kind of take over uh, for those kinds of um, capacities and practices. So I agree that our our sense of self as a tabula rasa, as a blank slate, it's clearly a it's just a fantasy, an illusion. Um, but I think that what's fun about your book is it offends both people on the left and the right uh, in modern <laughs> modern America. I've uh, noticed. <laughs> yeah, I bet you have. Um, so I think the left's critique of of that. Of your point would be, and it's, and I think there's something to it, which is, okay, we've had all these institutions before. We, the family was stronger. Uh, more people were religious. 
local community and norms imposed by that community were much more powerful. Uh, we were much less atomistic. We were connected in ways that you talked about. But those were bad institutions. They were patriarchal. They were sexist. They were racist. Uh, they were homophobic. Uh, we have to get. We had to get rid of those because all the liberation that they promised and were able to achieve were only for a small set of uh, of people. And it's better now. Of course, it's imperfect. But this current system, this current world we live in, this current culture that is uh, that you call liberalism, is is a big improvement. That certainly is a is a. Uh, well-articulated uh, statement that I've received from many people on the left about the book, uh, that it's precisely um, the overturning of these institutions that have allowed now allowed now the liberation and the equality of people who were formerly uh, not accorded uh, those forms of equality. And yet what's striking about that, you know, even if we look at the newspaper stories of the last several months, uh, the overturning of these institutions has not decreased uh, or has not eliminated um, uh, what we clearly see as uh, certain forms of abuse uh, that's taking place. Uh, we saw this in um, with the Harvey Weinstein incidents, uh, with, the, with all the various Me Too movements, that in the absence of shaping norms, especially in that fraught area of human sexuality, the likelihood is not a, a kind of sexual nirvana in which everyone knows exactly what they're supposed to be doing or a kind of world in which consent can simply just fill in for all of the, um, the, the, the necessary the baggage challenges. The baggage yeah. we used to carry. Yeah, exactly. No, it seems to me that if anything, um, what what one of the interesting results of this, and I talk about this a bit in the book, and it, it's a kind of paradoxical one, is that the liberation of the individual in this instance uh, to govern their own kinds of choices when it comes to something so deeply personal as sexuality now actually ends up empowering the state in interesting ways. I mean, what we've seen certainly here on college campuses is in the absence of or the demolition of the in loco parentis customs and the role that the adults on the campus were supposed to play in helping young people enter this, again, this time of fraught and challenging uh, relationships with the opposite sex, uh, that in the absence of that kind of formation, what we now find is that we need now the state to come in and exercise a kind of juridical realm over questions of whether or not consent was given or consent wasn't given. And so, uh, you know, as a consequence, we're not actually forming character in the way that I think we should ideally be forming character in this area, but rather we're simply we're, we're imposing now a kind of regime of a kind of almost Hobbesian Leviathan that's going to take the place of um, what we thought were oppressive customs. But now we're going to have this expansion of the state uh, as a consequence. And that doesn't seem to me to be a particularly attractive uh, uh, alternative to what uh, were much more local and it seems to me much more personally invested forms of formation uh, that um, ideally it seems to me should happen uh, in, in, in these kinds of institutions. And there's an underlying theme in the book, which I'm, which I'm deeply sympathetic to, uh, which is, I would, I would describe it this way. I don't think you word it this way, but I would describe it as we can solve everything. Just, you know, we just need to, we need more liberalism. Uh, so if liberalism has problems, we just need more of it. And I see this on the left uh, as, oh yeah, well, sure. There's some problems with government corruption or, special interests, but that we can fix that. We just need to get money out of the political system or whatever it is. And classical liberals, myself, uh, 
we have our own fantasies and utopias about, yeah, we just need to reduce the, we need to go back to a more constitutional form of government where government has less power and then there'll be less money and then there'll be less corruption. So we all have our, I would call either utopian urge or an illusion about what is possible that it just, it just needs to get fixed. And you raise the possibility really that it's not fixable. It's not, this is not, so in this cultural application would be, okay, sure. There were some problems with patriarchal structures and Sure, but we'll just we'll just keep the good stuff, and keeping the good stuff is not. I think there's an illusion about how we can fine tune our culture. Uh, you know, it's obviously an example of that is is the role of technology, which you talk a lot about, right? That oh well, if there's negative things about technology, we just need more technology to to fix the problems. Is that a, is that a an accurate summary of what of the of your of view on these this issue of sort of improvement? Yeah, I mean that's actually a nice way to put something. I don't, I don't think I put it in exactly those terms, but there is this, um, there is this belief. Uh, it seems to me as part of uh, both sides of this liberal equation. I think you put that nicely. Uh, what the political philosopher Bertrand de Juvenel called the myth of the solution—that we can ultimately solve all of the problems of politics—and it seems to me that the deep core of liberalism that the problems of politics can ultimately be solved through the kind of elimination of politics to the application of technique. And so it's interesting you should raise technology in that instance, that if we can get the right technique, we can actually eliminate the problems of politics. And I think this is this lies in some ways in the kind of yearning for if we can just restore the Constitution and if we can just get the right mechanism yep. in place, uh, we'll solve the problem of politics. And it's we certainly, the right, certainly – We need the right software update. We just haven't – we got the, we downloaded yeah, the wrong no, one. I think that's, yeah. I think that's right. <laughs> um, and then the debate becomes what's the right – mode yeah. Yeah. of achieving this particular end and is it through this kind of application of this kind of constitutional form or is it the application of the right kind of state program uh, and it both in some senses it is a kind of um, I, I would I don't know if I call it utopian I do think the progressive version of this is much more utopian but I think it's kind of it's sort of an ideology it's a it's envisions a solving of all political phenomenon at some level. And I, I'm much more sympathetic with, to what uh, Vaclav Havel described politics as the art of the possible. That is, it's always defined by the limits of um, you know, sort of the frailty and imperfection of human beings. I've been, uh, I've been actually writing a new preface to a book, uh, a set of lectures that were delivered by the wonderful political theorist, the late Jean Bethke Elstein, uh, who delivered some lectures in 1995 called um, Augustine um, and the politics uh, of uh, uh, and the limits of politics. Augustine and the limits of politics. And I found in her arguments of 1995 a freshness that seems to me even more relevant today. Uh, that um, uh, politics is somewhat somehow the realm between a kind of. On the one hand, this kind of overweening optimism that we can solve politics through the right application of a kind of technique. And then I, what I see today is a kind of growing sort of almost pessimism, a kind of despair uh, about politics uh, that uh, seems to be the flip side of this coin. And um, I, I, in rereading this book and writing a new preface for this book, it did, it did strike me that one of the odd consequences of of this liberal project, which was, you know, it's supposed to be in some ways a kind of a lowering of the horizon 
of what we thought possible. In other words, uh, in particular, by trying to remove any kind of religious notion uh, um, from politics. What, what I was saying earlier about the idea of freedom being the achievement and capacity to choose the good, the idea was if we could eliminate that from politics, we could therefore just simply all get along and just do whatever it was that we wanted to do. And, and we're seeing at the end of this kind of 200 or uh, 250 or 500 year project, depending when you date it, uh, a kind of an odd new kind of depoliticization and a kind of on the one hand a despair and a kind of optimism and a need for a kind of chastened but realistic uh, um, aspiration to what's possible in politics. Well, there's no doubt that, you know, I, I think people have been listening to Econ Talk for 10 years will note changes in my level of optimism versus pessimism. And I think until the, certainly until the crisis of the financial crisis of 2008, but even I think more importantly in the aftermath of uh, the election of Donald Trump and Brexit is, is, is the realization that, wow, things aren't going to just keep going like they've been going and that things that were off the table might be back on the table. Uh, And I think there's a human tendency to have the, to embrace the illusion that, Oh, yeah, we're just going to keep getting better, right? You know, I think the the fix it, and by that I don't mean uh, not just better, but oh, things are, we, we've kind of figured this out. You know, we'll tweak things here at the margins, but it's actually there are upheavals that 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 challenge the the existing order. That I think a lot of people, including myself, were naive enough to think, oh, yeah, that's not it was the end of history argument, uh, essentially. And, and this idea of fixing everything, I, I you know, I associate it to some extent with Silicon Valley where I spend summers and just an unbounded confidence in the human ability to um, fix stuff, mainly with software, <laughs> but, but it's just a generic outlook and um, it's very seductive and it's, it's a pleasant feeling to hold. And I, I'm not sure it's true. So I, I appreciate your reminding me. Yeah. I, I, um, so I actually begin the book by talking a little bit about Fuku. Francis Fukuyama and the end of history and uh, the kind of the sense of confidence in 1989 uh, that liberalism had sort of resolved that, that age-old question of what is the best form of government and we had we had solved that question. And part of that view was, I think, very much um, what you're describing is a kind of belief that a kind of a new form of permanent progress – particularly technological progress, um, had been introduced. But also, and I think this is more on the progressive side of things, a kind of moral progress yep. had been introduced. Absolutely. And, and I, I just, I'm just, uh, I study the history of political philosophy. I, you know, I begin with the Greeks and I, I, I assign stuff from Augustine and Aquinas and the Christian thinkers. And I just, uh, I just always thought this was an incredibly naive view uh, that, um, uh, had become this almost civilizational-wide uh, mythos that had been embraced. Um, and if anything, what were, what you just described as the kind of upheavals, the obviously the economic crisis, the now what I think is the political consequences of some of that crisis, the, the election of Donald Trump, Brexit, the the rise of um, you know these populist parties in in parts of Europe today. Um, if people have the inability to recognize the connection between that overweening confidence and this kind of blowback, then all we're doing is you know, continuing to perpetuate this mythos. And I, I see too much of that 
uh, for example, in the institutions and the kind of people that I associate with in, in elite universities in these institutions is a kind of desire to say this, this phenomena that seems to disrupt our narrative must simply be a sort of a false turn from the otherwise arc of history and the trajectory yeah. of progress. And once we solve that, we'll just resume the march of progress. And it seems to me this is a kind of – this is almost a condition that makes um, people – uh, you know, in a, in a sense, immune from reality, and this is what strikes me as ideological thinking: is the inability to recognize how the kind of the feedback from reality uh, contradicts the ideological beliefs. And we we were ready to see that when it came to communism. That communism kept telling us that you know the economic things were getting better and better, right? That every five years there'd be a new plan in which the economic uh, situation would improve, while you had people lining up to buy toilet paper uh, and so forth. And we have our own kind of ideology today, uh, at least in the elite circles that I tend to travel in, that makes people immune to seeing how the very consequences of the things that are regarded as being progress, the breakdown of the, all of these various institutions that once helped to form a good and decent life, regardless of your income level, has actually resulted in this incredible blowback. And until let's say those who now lead the liberal project can recognize this. Um, there's going to be to continue to be, I think, uh, the ongoing kind of internal clashing uh, that, that will continue unresolved as far as the eye can see. And I alluded to this in a recent, recent conversation with Arnold Kling here where you know, I think to apply some of that conversation to what you just said, the, the idea is, well, some people aren't going to participate in the economy perhaps or they're having a tough time. That's okay. We'll pay them. We'll just give them money. We'll give them Lots of money, universal basic income, they'll be fine. And I think that's a misunderstanding of what human beings care about uh, in our search for meaning and our desire to belong and our self-respect. And money is not its not enough. It's good when you don't have it, but uh, that's not the way to create a flourishing, uh, flourishing community or flourishing society. I, I want to put on my Hayekian hat for a minute and, and maybe riff a little on what you just said. Uh, in thinking about tradition, I was having lunch this past week with some folks who were talking about tradition, and I said, well, when, you know, when tradition's wrong, you should just reject it. And I said, yeah, that's a good idea, but sometimes it's hard really to know what's right and wrong. And I think that you didn't call it hubris, but I would call it hubris or smugness about what's right and wrong is infests all of us alone, left and right. And we all have a tendency to want to reject the things we think are wrong. It's a human it's a human tendency. But I think what's fascinating about that issue of tradition, and I, this is my Hayekian point, and I, I tied into Peirce, Charles Peirce and the pragmatists, is that you don't really understand where these traditions come from. You don't understand they've stood the test of time. And when you make that – and so therefore, you should be leery and wary of just rejecting tradition because you – are aware that it's wrong. And when, when, when you remind people that, they, they correctly point out, well, yeah, what about slavery? Well, yeah, slavery was a bad tradition. It turned out to be wrong, and it was, I'm glad we rejected it, and that was a mistake, and not everything that's traditional is good. But if your attitude is, well, therefore, nothing traditional is good, I think you're going to have some, some challenges. Right. Uh, so, in fact, um, one, of the, one of the arguments I make in the book is that liberalism is, as a philosophy – uh, and going back to this sort of ground definition, begins not with simply, um, let's say, 
the disposition to try to articulate what is a good tradition from a bad tradition, but to, but begins with a kind of ground assumption that tradition is um, by its nature it's um, arbitrary, not chosen by the individual, and therefore presumptively illegitimate. Right. So if we yep. begin with the basic assumptions of classical liberalism, the basic assumption is that the individual is sort of born into the world. You mentioned tabula rasa, that we are the self-making selves. And how can you be a self-making self if you're already formed and shaped in a tradition before you even come kind of the of the age of cognizance? Yep. So think, for example, of the Amish. Are the Amish able to choose freely whether or not they'll remain as an Amish person uh, when you're given yeah, tell that, that choice? Story. When you, yeah, well, uh, in the, the book, book I tell the story. Um, there was a book that came out um, probably in the late '90s called Rumspringer, which is a tradition in the Amish uh, community, certain Amish orders, uh, in which a young person, usually 16, 17 years old, is um, told to go out into the world to live among the non-Amish, the English as they call us, uh, for a year or for two years, uh, to often to live in live, you know, in ways that a kind of typical teenager would live, smoking, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and um, uh, at the end of that period of time is then asked whether or not they will re-enter the community uh, on the terms that the community demands. So giving up all of that kind of idea of freedom that they experienced in that uh, English community in the everyday American teenage life, uh, or whether they will uh, depart from the community and join that, uh, that, that, um, that world of modern liberty. And on the order of 90 plus percent, uh, the Amish people having tasted the fruits of this sort of vice and, uh, and freedom, they choose to reenter the Amish community. And I was discussing this with some colleagues when I taught at Princeton at the time. And my colleagues were quite upset about this. They were good liberals uh, believing in the self-making self. And they thought that unless people were choosing more or less on the basis of a coin flip – uh, whether or not they would re-enter the Amish community, that they weren't actually exercising freedom. And, and f- you can understand that from the liberal perspective, um, the idea that you are shaped and formed by some kind of tradition constitutes a kind of prior constraint on our free choice. And the fact that 90% were entering the community, even after, in a sense, being given the, the choice, suggested that they were – uh, these young Amish people had been so deeply shaped. They've been, and in their yeah, they've, they've been brainwashed. They've been brainwashed. Yeah, they've been yeah. brainwashed that they couldn't exercise actual liberty. And so I did ask, I said, what would be the percentage that would indicate that they were actually free? Hmm. Uh, and they said it would have to be 50% or less. In other words, a coin flip, uh, whether or not one would reenter the community or not. And that's kind of where we are today, if you think about it, according to contemporary measurements of whether or not someone remains in the church or the religious tradition in which they're raised. It's kind of a coin flip today uh, if you look at most of the major religions in the U.S. today. So we have achieved this condition of freedom in some way. So uh, all this is to say is that the liberal tradition begins with a deeply anti-traditional disposition. That tradition constitutes a form of constraint upon our uh, the ability of the self to make itself. Now, Hayek, Hayek himself had a more sophisticated understanding of this because he understood and he broke down what he saw as a kind of 
a, um, a problematic form of liberalism, which he called French liberalism, and he pointed to figures like Rousseau and Condorcet and Auguste Comte, and he even identified uh, Thomas Hobbes as an honorary uh, Frenchman in this instance. In other words, people who were deeply anti-traditional, but he also identified a tradition which he named figures like Edmund Burke and um, uh, Hume and he, an honorary, Engli- honorary Englishman, the French thinker Alexis de Tocqueville, as a much more tradition-friendly understanding. And I would say this is a kind of – a certain kind of liberalism that recognizes the limits of liberal ideology. And I, I would say that this, this, this understanding, the self-limiting liberalism – that recognized you needed a kind of non-liberal, pre-liberal set of understandings to limit the liberal ideology, this idea of freedom, was the ground condition for the success of the American project for the first several, we could say several hundred years, several, maybe, maybe several decades at least. That is to say, the ideal of a people that understood this understanding of liberty as self-limitation that you see articulated in, in some of the writings of the founding fathers, uh, uh, George Washington in particular. But then at the same time, you had some of our founding fathers also advancing this idea of a liberal anti-tradition. And so you had this kind of debate at the time of the American founding. And my, the argument of my book is that over time, we have become more conforming to our ideology rather than the kinds of practices that drew on these pre-liberal understandings uh, that Hayek himself recognized would be necessary for a successful kind of society. I want to shift gears. We, there's a lot of discussion in the book of, of nature, uh, which surprised me at first, and but made sense as I, as I read, read more. Uh, and as I, as I got uh, farther in the book, you argue that we've become very, uh, through agro agribusiness and through our economic system much more detached from nature from the land um there's a certain i you didn't talk about it, i don't think but certainly urban life the concentration of people in cities away from their former roots these are big issues in europe there are occasionally issues here in the united states about the importance of smaller communities living closer to to the land Talk about why that's how that fits in with with your story. Well, I I, I think ultimately, again, according to a classical understanding of human beings, human beings are, of course, creatures who have a nature. We we're creatures that are defined by our nature, and we're limited by our nature. And I think this understanding of freedom that I was talking about earlier is deeply connected to the idea that human beings have a nature, and therefore there's a way in which we can live. That accords with our nature, and there's a way in which we can live which doesn't accord with our nature, and why you can then distinguish between good choices that we make based upon based upon our native freedom, our choices that we make that accord with the nature of human beings, and that that nature of human beings is continuous with, it's not at odds with the nature of the world. It it, it it's not to say that human beings are the same. As the nature of the world, because we're also creatures that create conventions, we can manipulate nature, we can alter nature. But the great and overarching question was always, what are the limits of, in some ways you could say, the human manipulation of both the natural order of things and our own nature? Because we are these creatures who exercise this freedom. And I would say at the heart 
of what liberal education is, the liberal arts education is, is this question. What is it to exercise freedom in a way that doesn't contradict our nature and the nature of the world? And at the core of the liberal project, I argue this kind of ideological project, is the idea that nature is the other great obstacle to our liberty. There are two great obstacles to our liberty. The first is other people. And so we erect political system and an economic system to minimize the interference of other people, including the sort of disassembling of tradition, which we just talked about. But the other great obstacle to this understanding of liberty is nature. Nature becomes the great obstacle. It's the, it's the ultimate obstacle. Nature will kill us. But um, so that the natural world comes to be understood not as in some ways continuous with human nature, but as something, a kind of, let's say, an object that's the subject of our complete and thorough manipulation and mastery. And here I would again distinguish between kind of classical liberalism, which views the natural world as the stuff of our mastery and manipulation. And I think you see a continuous set of arguments from proto-liberal thinkers like Francis Bacon and Thomas Hobbes and then to figures like John Locke. And even in the American tradition, uh, John Dewey, who argues strongly in the tradition of Francis Bacon that human beings ought to manipulate and control the stuff of nature. I have several quotes in the book from John Dewey that evince this. Yeah, I'm going to come to one of them in a minute. So yeah, but, but, but then you have in the progressive tradition, you have oddly enough a kind of a rejection of this view of nature uh, as the stuff of ultimate manipulation. But they've replaced that with the idea that the human body is the subject of our complete and thorough manipulation. So they've detached the idea that human beings have a nature that's connected to the natural world. And while Today's progressives argue we should be environmentalists and concerned with the stuff of the world. They're also the most ardent uh, in terms of arguing for the complete mastery of the human body, especially reproductive processes, the kind of reproductive technologies that we see today, that there should be no limit to what we can do to change and alter uh, the human body. So in both instances uh, within the liberal project, what you see is the, the fundamentally the argument that nature is an obstacle and a limitation of our liberty, uh, and that ultimately through our capacity to govern and control nature, especially the scientific and technological project today, uh, that we will have the ultimate ability to create and generate this form of human freedom free of the obstacles of nature. And I, and I have to say, a lot of, of my impulses are to say it, most of that seems seems like a pretty good thing. Uh, on the, and so I, I'm not as alarmed by it as I think you are, but uh, and I'm not as alarmed by what I, I you write about as the potential environmental consequences, although there's obviously uncertainty about that. Um, but I was struck when reading about this, the parallels to uh, the master and his emissary, uh, recent guest on Econ Talk, Ian McGilchrist, who sees the world is a different lens. He's got the left side of the brain, very focused, very uh, concrete, very overconfident, uh, very isolated. The right side of the brain is how we interact in a world where we have to live with other people, where we have to interact with nature. And he argues that our culture today is much more left side than right side. And as a result, we've lost that feeling of connection with the world. We've lost that feeling of connection with others we're drifting toward a more lonely and uh, alienated um, 
experience of life that is, quote, not natural, because as you point out, we are natural creatures who are part of nature. And I don't know if you've read his book, but it's certainly uh, much of what you were writing about uh, made me think of what he is he's worried about in uh, with mon- with modernity. I haven't read it, but now I'm going to put it on my list of things to read. So thanks for that. You know, it's interesting what you the way that you frame that. Um, one of the things that I argue in the book is that this this domain of culture, this thing we call culture, even if we think about the word, culture is related to the idea of cultivate, of raising up, of um, like like agriculture, uh, of bringing life to fruition. It's also the basis of our word for cult closely related to religion. And so culture and religion have always had a close bond and relationship with each other. And in the book, I I argue that culture has been that domain in which the negotiation, in particular between this possibility of unfettered human liberty and the constraints of the natural world was largely negotiated. That culture was the space, you could say, where our our capacity of... um, acting in even ways that go against our own nature, you could say, that um, of, of manipulating and transforming and overcoming our nature, uh, that that capacity or that ability was in some ways um, regulated and constrained and negotiated. And you, know, I, you could talk about this, for example, we talked earlier about sexuality being one realm, that, that culture was the space where the ability of human beings to do just about anything they want in terms of their own sexuality uh, was was governed and guided, you could say. And it was uh, part of our liberation was the conclusion that that form of guidance and governing was seen as this constraint upon this natural kind of equality. But as a result, yep. we now we now live in a world in which we have no constraints uh, or increasingly fewer constraints upon sexuality, including even the idea of what it's for and what its ends and purposes are for. And so why increasingly uh, this kind of decultured form of thinking about the human body leads to what I think is increasingly the likely manipulation of the human body in terms of overcoming we could say the natural functions of human beings and why we're now having debates over things like transhumanism, uh, whether there are natural limits to what we should or ought to do. Now, in a society with a culture, those are debates that we could and we ought to have. But liberalism is, in many ways, you could say one of the things it attempts to do is to deconstruct culture and replace it with what I call an anti-culture in the book, the absence of a kind of culture. And that anti-culture then makes it extremely difficult, if not impossible, to have those kinds of conversations and debates because the presumption is always that any expansion of individual liberty is always good and any constraint upon individual liberty is always on its, kind of, on its face unjustified. But what we are unable then to think of are the kind of broader and universal consequences of what we see of as these kinds of really the ultimate the, the pursuit of individual choice. And is it a good thing for human beings ultimately to manipulate their own nature in a sense out of existence? In the same way, we're unable to have discussions and debates over the question of how we are using uh, and manipulating the planet as a whole. So, I, so liberalism is not just that it sees nature as an obstacle. It deconstructs the realm of culture that, may, that's, that seems to me is the realm where those negotiations take place. Yeah, our, our tradition is we don't have one. 
yeah, <laughs> I, our culture I, is we don't have a culture. I think that's a very deep, interesting way way to think about it. I, I think this is a, I, I, to extent. I think we had we had a kind of a remnant culture. It was obviously informed by a, an older Christian understanding of the human person, and that persisted for a time. But the argument of my book is that the the underlying political philosophy had its own logic that eventually disassembled that that culture and that tradition, and that's where we, that's where we find ourselves today. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, definitely that religious tradition, and along with some others, are they're in retreat. And so one view says, okay, yep, we don't have a culture, uh, we don't have tradition, we we've got this. Uh, We've got some baggage, but not much because we've thrown a lot of it over the side. So we don't have to have to have to live out of those those suitcases. We we can just put in there whatever we want. And uh, so these jobs, these great the great human enterprise of self control and self governance, that's up to us now. We don't we don't have the tradition. We don't have the shame and the guilt that motivates uh, behavior in, in many religions or in small. Local groups where uh, gossip plays a similar role; those things are gone, uh, and now it's just up to you. And so uh, that's the enterprise. And if you want to, if you don't like it, you, you can. You're free to make your own restraints on yourself. You can tie yourself to the mast, as Ulysses did, if you choose to. Um, but you don't have to. And the people who don't have to like it that way. And the rest of us have our choice. Um, I happen to be a religious Jew. That's my choice. I happen to have embraced a bunch of restraints on myself. I like it. Maybe I'm a fool. Maybe I'm, you know, deluded. But I like it. And so you don't. You, you, know, you, you choose a different set of restraints or none. What's, uh, what's wrong with that, those personal choices being made? It seems like, a, isn't that a better world? Well, we're, we're, we're finding out <laughs> whether it's a better world. Uh, I, I think ultimately, I mean, we're... That's a good we're, answer, uh, by the way. I like yeah, that Yeah, I mean, you know, this is, I mean, politics is, interestingly, of course, it's the ultimate Petri dish. And uh, we are, um, we're in the midst of an experiment that had never been tried before in the history of the world, which is let's disassemble all of these traditional institutions, the idea of tradition itself, the idea of culture will unleash... These uh, scientific powers will create a political and economic order that's ultimately, in certain senses, limitless, uh, at least in its, in its charge to produce the autonomous self-making self. And I, my argument, the argument of my book is that we are now at the point where we can make some pretty broad conclusions about this project, about this experiment. We're living in this Petri dish. I mean, it's not something you can do – Literally in a Petri dish, we're doing it with an entire civilization, and hence the title of my book, Why Liberalism Failed. I think that the evidence has accumulated to the point where we have to conclude that this project was based on the false conception of human freedom, a false understanding of human nature, a false understanding of the relationship between human beings and nature, uh, and that we have to start anew. And probably the part of the book that's received the most criticism is my conclusion, where I don't have a grand alternative. We need a new ideology. <laughs> right. We need a new ideology, which is precisely the liberal desire. What's the new fix? And uh, in the first instance, my argument is that, well, you know, we're going to actually have to try to create culture. And how do you do that when you exist in an anti-culture? And oddly enough, you now have to do it within the context of liberalism, which is to say we have to – I think just as you're describing, we have to in a sense decide 
to begin to create a culture, uh, which is not how cultures typically work. You usually are raised in a culture, and it's not a matter of your dis- your choice or decision. And it leads to this kind of paradox. And many of my readers have pointed out, well, this paradox seems to me to be kind of unrealistic. And I don't know what else to say other than uh, if culture is needed uh, and we don't have one, then one has to begin creating it somewhere. So in the first instance, I think there's the need to sort of build from the bottom up for families, communities, churches, and so forth to build anew. But I also argue that there is a need for a new political philosophy. And while I don't begin to lay that out at the conclusion of the book, that'll be the next book, uh, it's going to have to be based on a different understanding of freedom. And so here we're going uh, to need to um, uh, begin to articulate in new forms, recognizing where we've been and where we've come from, but new forms of a conception of the good and forms of self-limitation in ways that are appealing to a people that have lived in this kind of condition in which we haven't had the guideposts and the signposts and the kinds of those kinds of forms of, let's say, uh, encouragements for self-limitation. Uh, and how does one articulate that in a post-liberal age? I think that's that's um, that's a project that's at least. Um, I thought it would be, you know, when I wrote the book, I thought maybe this is another 250-year project. I'm actually convinced now it might be just another 20-year project, the way things are going. I think uh, the need for uh, a kind of post-liberal vision is becoming really um, very quite evident that uh, it seems to me the dissolution of the liberal order is is taking place at a much more accelerated rate uh, than I even expected. Uh, so I, I actually think that there's a time uh, right now, a need for the articulation of a kind of a new political philosophy that will begin to articulate a rather different vision of the human good that we've had on offer here for the last uh, 200, 300, 400 years. Yeah, my counterpoint to that is that I, I think things are much better than you think. Um, I, I think we live long. We live healthy. Uh, most of us live at a standard of living that's unimagined even 50 years ago. Enormous swaths of people are doing that across the world. It's um, So I think there's some grounds for some optimism. And I think the – I understand there's I – see, I see the dark side of things too, but I, I think the glass is half full and you think it's maybe three-quarters empty – um, <laughs> well, you know, I, I've been presented with many, um, yeah, many of these arguments, and people will often present Stephen Pinker's kinds yeah. of arguments. And there's no doubting that, uh, and liberalism really was the kind of wager that if we could create the material conditions, uh, what uh, Francis Bacon, among others, you know, talked about the kind of the the, the kinds of um, you know overcoming the the constraints of a cruel nature. Uh, that people that we could create a, kind of a happy civilization, and I, I guess I would just point to a whole bunch of different measures that, to me, constitute the core of happiness. I'm not saying we should relish the idea of living shorter lives or less healthy lives. I think it's wonderful. I think it's part of uh, part of it, it conforms to human nature to desire health and to desire life, but it also conforms to human nature to have good and healthy relationships. Uh, to have, you know, at the end of one's life, one doesn't think about how much money one has in the bank. Maybe some people do, but most people will think about the relationships that they had, their families, their loved ones, and so forth. And, and uh, you know, and one of the striking things about one of the measures one sees today in the wealthiest countries of the world are the levels of loneliness that are just uh, extraordinary and unprecedented in our civilization. So what is it, you know, in some ways, what have we gained 
when roughly half of our population today says my greatest uh, my greatest challenge today is the fact that I'm lonely. Uh, so I, I'm I'm just not as convinced. First world problem. That, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe. Uh, yeah, I, I, uh, but but it seems to me that's a first world problem that the first world hasn't figured out. Well, I agree uh, with you there. Fact, but in fact, that we what we've done is we've said you can be content if you have all these things, if you have all these material goods. And it turns out that that's not the ultimate source of human contentment. Yeah, no one on his deathbed wishes he spent more time at the office. And I, I, I and I agree with you there. And but I would add, uh, you know, Thoreau writing a long time ago, said the mass of men lived lives of quiet desperation. And I'm not sure there's any more desperation. And maybe maybe there's a little bit less. Let's, cl- But I don't know. I, I, to me, it's I'm agnostic on that. I, I just I, I understand the, the, the concern that it might be getting worse. But um, I want to close up. We haven't talked any much economics, which is perhaps ironic. But I'd like to read a quote from John Dewey that you mentioned and then get your thoughts on sort of capitalism or economics writ large. You write about Dewey saying – Dewey's discussing a, a savage tribe in the desert, uh, and he says, quote, its adaptation involves a maximum of accepting, tolerating, putting up with things as they are, a maximum of passive acquiescence, and a minimum of active control of subjection to use. And then you say a civilized people in the same desert also adapts, but says Dewey – it introduces irrigation. It searches the world for plants and animals that will flourish under such conditions. It improves by careful selection those which are growing there. As a consequence, the wilderness blossoms as a rose. The savage is merely habituated. The civilized man has habits which transform the environment. And I think that's an accurate statement. And I, I guess I find it, the economist in me finds it deeply appealing. The vision I see you advancing is local less manipulative, more artisanal, and to be honest, poorer because we're not going to have the the global ability to trade and specialize and the things that create prosperity at the level we have them now. Is that the bet that you would want us to make that in the opposite direction, a little less prosperity, a little more closeness to each other, a little more awareness of who we buy and sell from? Uh, those are two questions, really, the Dewey and that last point, but uh, – Say whatever you feel like. Sure. Well, I I I I, uh, I like that quote in particular because Dewey is a, a great hero, especially among progressive liberals. And so to have that quote uh, was a little bit of a uh, oh, shame <laughs> so, on you. <laughs> uh, well, you know, here's here's one of your heroes uh, who's basically calling uh, kind of a traditional culture a bunch of savages and is talking about sort of modern manipulation of nature as civilization. So Dewey's uh, hardly the um, the figure that many on the on the progressive left think that he is. Uh, in fact, there's another line that I quote in the book by Dewey who talks about the need to see nature essentially as a kind of prisoner who's withholding its secrets from mm-hmm. us uh, and that we have to subject it to torture in order to force it to disclose its secrets. Again, so Dewey's, uh, let's say, a, a, at least a, um, a, a mixed figure uh, yeah. for those on the left. I, you know, I, I just think the, the, the dichotomy that's drawn is just very typical and it's very problematic uh, that either you're a savage who seeks to retain some kind of old traditional forms of living in accordance with nature. And that's really what Dewey is criticizing. He's criticizing a civilization, or he calls it a bunch of savages, who sought to live in accordance to natural rhythms and natural, uh, the kind of what, what nature could offer. 
and he contrasts this with people who completely reject the idea that nature forms any kind of a standard or a set of limits and rather to simply seeks to force its will upon the natural world in order to extract from it what it wants. And I, I guess I would say that you know this this division of the world into these two choices seems to me to be very much a kind of false dichotomy, and it's one that I that I'm afraid too often infects those of the classical liberal uh, disposition, uh, the sort of view either you're sort of this backward thinking person trying to hold on to old forms, or you're this forward thinking person who's innovating and changing and transforming. And it seems to me that you know we need the capacity to exercise prudence and judgment. Are there things that we can or ought to do uh, that constitute some recognition of the existence of nature that we're going to need and rely upon, and indeed that future generations are going to need and rely upon? There's often the presumption that whatever we do today, whatever problems it may cause, will be dealt with by the inventiveness and innovativeness of future generations. So basically, we're kicking the can down the road, and I just don't think this is a particularly good form of parenting, and I don't think it's a good form of generational responsibility. So I think I th- uh, it seems to me some capacity to think outside of these binary terms uh, is is the first instance, and then the second thing would be, um, I, I, you know, the idea that we, you know, the, some evaluation on the on the question of whether there are um, a need to um, regard the natural rhythms and flows of life as as limiting factors to what we do that this is necessarily going to lead to a poorer society i mean we have we have a society today that's highly bifurcated uh, that many people are struggling on the edge of society, uh, on, on our economic uh, lives. And so the idea that simply increasing wealth is always good when, in fact, it seems to be increasingly um, concentrated in a rather small number of people, it, that's an argument that I think is going to have less and less purchase in a world that's increasingly divided in the way that Tyler Cowen discusses uh, in his book, Average is Over. In a world in which you're going to have 10, what well, he says, 10 to 15 percent of the population that's going to be enormously wealthy and 85 to 90 percent of the population that's basically, he says, living in the equivalent of favelas uh, in the state of Texas, he suggests, is one that I think is not going to have, uh, that this argument is not going to have much appeal to. Uh, the argument well, that simply generating wealth for the sake of wealth is always necessarily a good thing. And so the question to me, to me becomes is that old question of political philosophy. What is economics for and what is it doing? And that ultimately the economy serves a political end. And if an economy is generating titanic forms of inequality, it's likely to have very bad political repercussions. This is understood by Aristotle, is understood by Machiavelli. This is a longstanding understa- uh, uh, part of political philosophy. And that part of the equation seems to have fallen out entirely out of economics thinking when the sole criteria becomes economic growth and the increase of wealth. It seems to me it has to be, economics has to be reconnected to the discipline of politics and political philosophy if, if um, a kind of flourishing political and economic order hopes to, uh, hopes to survive. Well, I'm a big fan of Tyler and I interviewed him about his book. We'll put a link up to that episode on Average is Over, but I think he's grossly mis- it's an interesting dystopian vision, but I don't. I don't think it's where we're going. Uh, and I he think he says the, it's a utopia. What? He actually he actually argues it's a utopia. I know. Well, that's Tyler. God it's, bless it's, him. 
but but and I think I think he uh, but I think at least he has the virtue of a kind of honesty about yeah. it that, oh, fair that enough. he sees that this is this is the trajectory of the modern economic order and that this is a good thing and I just think uh, as a matter of course uh, a it's I disagree that it's a good thing, and B, I don't think it's a plausible political scenario. Yeah, well, I certainly agree. With, I certainly agree with the latter. Uh, uh, I, I do think that the level of inequality being generated is misrepresented by the numbers. I do think it's widely believed to be the case, and that generates a lot of political consequences. I don't think economists have ignored it. They're increasingly obsessed with it. It seems to me. I wish they'd be more obsessed with thinking carefully about whether those numbers are reliable. But that's that's just my uh, pet peeve. Uh, well, let's close on a more optimistic note. Uh, your book's very dark. Uh, it's, I would call it a pessimistic book. Do you see any signs of, of optimism and positive things from the trends you're talking about? Do you see anything to be uh, optimistic about beside the Amish? <laughs> I actually, well, I actually do. It's I funny. like the Amish myself. I, 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 no, I finished the book uh, in a time uh, when it seemed that um, – all of these trends would just continue um, without cease, <laughs> so uh, that there would be the ongoing kind of fo- unfolding of this liberal ideology. Uh, in fact, I think uh, in an odd way, what what often causes a lot of upset among my colleagues, the, the kinds of um, electoral activity and consequences and outcomes that you see in Europe today and even in the United States. Uh, oddly enough, I see these as kinds of signs of uh, inchoate and somewhat articulate signs of a certain rejection of this liberal trajectory uh, that uh, I, I hope will be um, this, this percolating up from below will um, itself generate a new and different leadership class. I think what's needed today is a better elite, uh, a better ruling class that simply doesn't presume, as we were saying earlier, the sort of the end of history narrative and uh, everything is always getting better and better and we'll have the fix for things. Um, uh, And rather a kind of of, uh, the renewal of a kind of politics and in particular the capacity uh, to negotiate within national settings uh, between those who are doing really quite well, people who graduate from the places that I've taught, uh, and people who are not doing so well in our society. And I think that's simply a matter of political negotiation that requires us to overthrow the ideology uh, that so deeply informs our liberal society today and to think of ourselves as a kind of national community. Uh, and I know it's difficult. It's a challenge to do that in a time of globalization, of economic integration. But unless we conceive of ourselves as a kind of national community and even community of communities, the nation as a community of communities, uh, then I think that liberalism will continue on its sad and worrisome trajectory. So I actually see signs of hope in kind of the eruptions in our political uh, um situation today and i'm just i'm i'm devoted to to whatever extent possible that i can in my position as a professor at a top research university to encouraging my people people at these places to begin thinking about what do we do to form a better elite a better leadership class uh that can better respond to what seems to me to be legitimate grievances that are welling up in our political system today my guest today has been Patrick Deneen. His book is Why Liberalism Failed. Patrick, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thanks for this terrific conversation. 
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.